people every now and then I get a comment on this show that really I, I, I want to respond to, but it's going to take way too much time and way too much space to respond to the comment section. And so I'll leave a short message and say, hey, I love the comment. I love the thoughts. I think there's something to think about. Let me do a video on it. And that is what is happening today. Let me, let me show you the last comment or the last part of the comment that came in and tell you a little bit more about it. But it says, hey, I don't remember the rest of your points, but I think I made my argument. The biblical story doesn't make sense and the evidence has never been shown to prove it. At best, Christians use guilt trips and Pascal's wager to get you to believe. Just go watch any of Ray Comfort videos. Intellectual dishonesty at its highest. I don't manipulate easily. So anyways, I had a conversation with this person. Uh, I let them know I'd be doing this show. They wanted to come and interact. So I hope that you show up here eventually, or at least you watch this eventually to hear some thoughts I have on your comment. Now, this initially came in in response to a video that I did back in like February of 2020 titled Three Reasons Why People Don't Believe in Christianity, I think. And um, and so I go into what is it that guides our decision making process? And my conclusion was kind of it's not all evidence uh, that, that guides all decisions. And this is also true of Christians. It is often not the evidence that gets us to believe what we believe, but we believe for a wide range of other reasons. And so it's kind of the idea of the video. And in the video, I very briefly mentioned kind of 10 maybe arguments or lines of evidence that point to the truth of Christianity. Like God is the best explanation of the beginning of the universe. God's the best explanation for the design, like design in our body and biology, the best explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe, uh, the best explanation for objective moral values and duties, the best explanation of the existence of evil, that God's the best explanation for the fulfilled prophecies uh, pointing to Jesus Christ. Uh, let's see, what else did I say? He talked about the resurrection of Jesus is the best uh, explanation that fits the facts of Jesus' life. And then um, near-death experiences, the existence of consciousness, and I think that was kind of it. And so those were things that I very briefly mentioned in the video. And I asked this question, uh, do atheists actually have intellectual arguments against all of these arguments for Christianity? Do they have defeaters to each one of these points? Or is it they kind of dismiss the arguments and go with maybe an emotional rejection of Christianity or maybe a volitional, moral rejection of Christianity? So that's kind of the background. And so those were my points that I brought up. And so one skeptic, one person commented on each one of those points and said, here is a thought or a response to all those different lines of evidence that you posted. And so in today's show, this is a big introduction, but today's show is for me to then go through and work through each of his points. And so we're going to talk about all those different evidences and his responses to them and then my thoughts on his response. And so let me take that step back and let you know, Dave, this is your first time here. My name is Ryan Pauly. This show is geared to help you think deeply about Christianity, to defend it well, and to faithfully live it out. And I want to hopefully equip you to engage the culture for Jesus. That is my goal. That is my hope here on this show. And so doing that today, we're going to be thinking about Christianity. We're going to be looking at the arguments and reasons to believe in Christianity and to address those points. Now, from the start, uh, let me just kind of mention, because there's a lot of information that I'm going to try to cover in a very short amount of time. And so with a lot of these topics that we're going to be looking at, I have done in-depth, longer interviews with scholars on those topics. And so what I'm going to try to do is after the show is all done, and this may take a little while, but after the show's all done, I'm going to do timestamps of each one of the objections that we're going to cover, as well as in each of those timestamps or under each objection, uh, the videos with different scholars and authors that I have done related to that topic. If you want to go deeper into that specific issue, so I'm going to try to provide that for you so you can jump ahead to something that is of interest. And if you want to go deeper, 
there's another resource for you. So I want to get that done for you. So with that, let me jump in and uh, we're going to kind of work through these. And again, if you have questions, if you have comments, if you have objections that you also want to raise, um, I want to encourage you to put those in the live chat. Uh, Slam and Eddie, good to see you guys here. Always good to see you uh, here at the show. And so uh, we're going to jump in. So starting off, um, he starts off and says, wrong. I base my views on intellectual grounds. How is God the best answer for the beginning of the universe when we don't know the beginning? Big Bang is just a starting point. Now, again, as we work through these, I want you to kind of think of that last comment that he made uh, talking about that people believe in Christianity because of, of guilt trips and Pascal's wager that we just kind of make you maybe make you feel guilty that there is no proof um, that uh, the biblical story does not make sense. At best, all we have are guilt trips and Pascal's wager. There's no evidence to point to this. And so I want to work through and I want to try to provide some evidence and, and think through some of these points that he brings up here. So first of all, he says, look, I'm wrong. He bases his views on intellectual grounds. Now, let me just kind of back up a little bit. If you didn't watch the original video and you want to pause this and go down in the description below that original video is there. It's short, like four minutes. But I, I didn't say that people don't object to Christianity based on intellectual grounds. That absolutely does happen. There are, uh, as I mentioned, there are three different categories of doubt. I think that there are intellectual doubts, intellectual rejections that some people just simply believe it's not true. There are then emotional uh, objections or doubts, uh, people that have had tough experiences. This comes from pain and hurt within the church or with Christians. And so if Christians have hurt you, if Christians have uh, done something that affects you very negatively, then often people don't want to be associated with Christianity or the church because of experiences that they have had, emotional experiences. Not that they just have emotional reasons, but uh, kind of these experiences that have to do with their emotions. And the last is volitional or, or moral uh, objections or rejections of Christianity, where I just want to live a different way. Now, again, I'm not saying that this is all three are true of every single person, uh, but this in my experience, uh, I've seen all three. There was an atheist. Uh, when I first got into apologetics, I started having conversations with, and he talked about how he was an atheist. And he didn't think it was true. And we spent about two or so days working through the evidence. He was staying at my house. And after a few days of working through the evidence late at night, talking about everything you can imagine, he ended up coming to faith. And, and when he accepted Christ at a church service that he attended, he, he mentioned back to me and said, hey, I, I said, did I think I see what I just thought, saw? You know, did I see what I think I just saw? And he goes, yeah. He goes, after talking with you, I had no more excuses. Right. And so here he had these intellectual reasons that were kind of stopping him from accepting the truth of Christianity. And I was, we worked through each of those and he was convinced then that Christianity was true and accepted Christ. Um, but I've also had students and I've talked to people personally who have told me flat out, if I admit that Christianity is true, I will have to stop doing the things I want to do. Another student said, if I become a Christian, my friends will look at me differently. You see, this is not an intellectual rejection. This is a volitional. I don't want people to look at me differently. I don't want people to think I'm weird or that I've fallen for some sort of trap. And so therefore, I'm not going to accept Christianity or living a certain moral life. And so I think that these are true of different people, not of everybody. And so I'm not saying that every single atheist rejects Christianity simply based on emotional or volitional reasons. Um, there are atheists that are rejecting it based on intellectual reasons. And so if that is you, uh, then I'm not wrong on that point. You're just under that one of those categories. You reject it for intellectual grounds. So looking at this first point, then 
Uh, Because I mentioned that God is the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. He says, how is God the best explanation for the beginning of the universe when we don't know the beginning? The Big Bang is just a starting point. Well, I want to kind of think through this a little bit because um, we don't have to know everything about something, specifically of where that thing came from, in order to kind of narrow down the options of how it got there, right? Think of archaeology, for example. If you are, 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 are an archaeologist and you're digging randomly in the ground and you start to find some pottery or some you know, arrowheads, some shaped rocks, or you start to find paintings in a cave or something, um, you could say, yeah, well, we don't know how it got here. But that still is not unreasonable to say, look, there are some certain options that it can't have happened. This probably did not form naturally. There's not a natural explanation for how, how artwork got on the wall of a cave. We don't know who put it here. We don't know how it got here, but clearly this is the work of intelligence because it's artwork painting on a cave wall. There's pottery in the ground. This is something that humans do. And so what we were recognizing is here, like we don't have to know everything about it, but it still can eliminate some options. And so when it, when it looks at the beginning of the universe, when we look at the Big Bang, we're talking about the nature of the beginning. We don't have to know everything about it, but what it, what happened here? And he says, the Big Bang is just a starting point. Okay, so starting point of what? Now, as many scientists will stay, and Stephen Hawking is one of them, he says, you know, practically everyone now believes in the beginning of, that the Big Bang is the beginning of the universe and time itself, right? So if we have the Big Bang talking about the beginning of our space-time universe, where space, stuff, and time began to exist, then we have kind of our cosmological argument. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, a universe has a cause. And so you look at what is the nature of something or what could possibly cause something like our universe. And so if we have evidence to believe that our universe, all of space and time and physical stuff, matter, came into existence at a point in time, then whatever caused that has to be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. And so when we look at this, okay, what could cause these things to happen, right? And then that's how the cosmological argument breaks down a little bit further and says, okay, there are two possible explanations for this. You have a disembodied mind that would be immaterial, spaceless, and timeless. And then you can also have kind of abstract objects like numbers. Those are our only two possibilities. Well, abstract objects like numbers don't have the ability to create. Uh, you need a personal intelligence to create. It has to be uh, one that has freedom to choose to create. So you have to have a personal, spaceless, timeless, intelligent being. Also something that is powerful in order to create. And so this would be kind of looking at uh, the evidence of what we do know, right? So it's not saying, I don't know how this happened, therefore God did it. This is not a God of the gaps argument, but it's looking at what we do know and then looking at say, okay, now based on what we know, what could cause this? What Where could this possibly come from? And to claim that there's another physical universe that created our physical universe, and then the question is, well, what caused that? Now, this sometimes comes back to the question of what caused God, but that's where we'll talk about here in just a moment. Now, one thing I like, um, and, and kind of thinking deep, more deeply about this, is that the, 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 the argument that I make, at least, and other Christian apologists, is not simply based on scientific evidence to where if the science changes, all of a sudden, uh, we have to completely change our position. I like how William Lane Craig puts this, where he talks about that the philosophical arguments for beginning of the universe come first, then the scientific evidence confirms it, right? So even if we don't have scientific evidence, a Big Bang cosmology pointing to the beginning of the universe, which we do, we still have our philosophical arguments 
pointing to the fact that our universe cannot be eternal into the past. And so what very quickly are these arguments? Uh, number one is that uh, there cannot be an actual infinite number of past events. Now, this is different than potential infinites. Right, so a potential infinite is a is a finite amount of something, right, of numbers. Uh, so you start and then you count, and eventually maybe you could count to all the way to infinity, but at each point you stop, you have that finite amount, right? One, two, three, four, five, and you can keep counting forever, but you don't have an actual infinite at that time. This is a potential infinite, if that makes sense. Um, that's different than an actual infinite, where you actually have the infinite set right in front of you. And so uh, there are a lot of reasons that we can go into, and I talk about this a little bit in my interview with William Lane Craig on uh, objections to, to the cosmological argument uh, that you can hopefully find down below later on after I get to that and finish this. Uh, but this would be an example of saying, look, there cannot be an actual infinite number of past event of actual infinite number of past events. Uh, there has to be a, a finite number of past events, and therefore our universe cannot be actually infinite. There has to be a beginning to our universe. This is based on philosophy, not just science. Now, the second kind of argument that I like that kind of builds off of this is, uh, of, you know, the finite number of past events have to be so because as time goes on, it's kind of like dominoes getting knocked over. Or the example that I like is uh, fireworks, right? Where you have to have this unmoved mover, if you have to have this uncaused first cause. And so uh, it's like this. Um, if you have to um, set up a a tube for to launch fireworks, right? Before you can launch the firework, you have to set up the tube. Now, if before you could launch that firework, you have to set up one more tube before that, right? Two tubes now of fireworks to have that firework show. And in order to set up uh, to launch the fireworks, you need one more tube, right? So if in order to have a firework show, before you can push the button to launch the first firework, you have to set up an infinite number of firework launching tubes. Will you ever have a firework show? The answer is no. If you're watching a fireworks show, you know that eventually they stopped setting up firework launching tubes and they pushed the button. All right, in a similar way, if you think about the fireworks show as living in the present moment right now, and there's a, a number of tubes they had to set up for you to get to that moment of the show. If they had to set up an infinite number of tubes, the show never begins. In the same way, if we have to pass through an infinite number of past events before we get to today, then we would never get to today because before you could live today, you have to live the day before and the day before, and you have to live through an infinite number of days before reaching the present. So I probably kind of butchered this as I've gone, tried to go quickly, but here are two different philosophical arguments pointing to the fact that our universe had a beginning. And again, the scientific evidence then comes along and confirms it. So if our universe has a beginning, then it needs to have a beginner. And then the, we start to look at the properties and qualities and characteristics of what could possibly be the beginner of a universe. And so I think that that is why God is the best explanation, right? In the same way that a, a group of people is the best explanation, an intelligent mind is the best explanation for finding cave painting in a cave. I think that God, an immaterial, powerful, timeless, spaceless, disembodied mind is the best explanation for the beginning of our universe and all of time, space and matter. And so uh, there's a couple quick thoughts on the cosmological argument. Again, videos linked down below. So he goes on uh, to my second point about God being the best explanation for design. And he says, evolution shows how our bodies have evolved. There is evidence that you can look at. Now, this is hard for me to respond to because the evidence is not presented, right? This is a claim that evolution shows this, there's evidence. And so again, my question would be, 
Okay, how did you come to this conclusion? What is the evidence that you're referring to? Excuse me. But secondly, what do you mean by our bodies have evolved? Right? What do you mean by our bodies have evolved? In one sense, if we're talking about change over time, then yes, our bodies have evolved. I look different now than when I was first born. And so absolutely, my body has evolved in that sense. Uh, if we talk about um, microevolution, right, our bodies evolving, you know, within the gene pool of a species. Yeah, I mean, my son is an example of microevolution where he's a small genetic change, a small genetic variation from me and my wife but uh, he's still a human being. And so if we're talking about evolution in that sense, uh, random small genetic mutations, um, but within the gene pool of a species, then absolutely our bodies have evolved. We are different. Maybe we're bigger or stronger or faster or whatever because of certain kind of characteristics and ways that we change our bodies and we adapt to our environment and whatnot. So absolutely our bodies have evolved in that sense. Uh, if we're gonna claim though that our bodies that have evolved in the sense of a common ancestor, um, again, then we have to say, well, what is that evidence that we have to, to show that these um, common ancestors are actually common ancestors rather than us and these other fossils in the fossil record have a common creator, right? Is it possible that the similarities that we look at uh, are the result of a common creator rather than a common ancestor? And so again, this comes back to that question of does God exist or not? And so if you say, no, it's not a common creator, it has to be only a common ancestor, then the question is, okay, well, why not? Why not common creator? If the answer is, well, because the creator does not exist, God does not exist, okay, I can see why we get to the belief that, uh, that evolution shows the design of our bodies is false, um, that there is no because there is no creator. But then we have to take that step back and say, okay, what are our reasons for believing that God exists? Kind of what we just talked about a little bit in point number one. Now, if you say, yes, it's possible that it's a common creator and it's a possible that it's a common ancestor, but here's why common ancestor makes more sense. Uh, I'd love to, to, to hear that. And you can kind of comment there in the, in the live chat, or you can comment afterwards in the video in the comment section of what sort of evidence points to the fact that a common ancestor is better evidence than a common creator explaining or better explanation of the evidence than a common ancestor. Um, again, on this, I'll post it uh, in the video below, but I've done a couple interviews on uh, with Fuzz Rana, Dr. Fuzz Rana, one on evolution, uh, looking at all these different explanations. Uh, the other interview, uh, very much more recently, on biochemical systems and design within biochemical systems within our body, uh, and that design pointing to a designer. And so uh, those might be some videos that are interesting if you want to dig deeper a little bit into it. All right, so moving on from evolution. To the next point, again, I feel like I'm going so fast, but I'm, hey, we're working through eight different points here, and so each one gets a few minutes. Third point, I mentioned that God is the best explanation for the fine-tuning of our universe. Now, he says in response to this, the fine-tuning of our universe is an after-the-fact belief. You look at it with hindsight and say someone created this, when it's cause and effect, where the earth formed gave rise to the possibility of life. Every once in a while, somebody wins the lottery. Now, a couple things uh, to think through with this one. Again, I want to kind of come back to the archaeology example. I think that would be very similar of kind of what he mentions here of an after-the-fact belief, right? So, so yeah, what, fine, what the fine-tuning of the universe does is we look at characteristics of our universe and go, wow, this is finely tuned for life. This is designed for a purpose. This fits in, you know, the Goldilocks zone. It's not too big. It's not too small. It's just right. And then we have to ask that question. What are the possibilities 
uh, for this. And again, I talk about this in my interview with uh, Dr. Fazrana, and he looks at though at the Goldilocks zone or the anthropic principle within biochemistry. Normally, this is applied to astronomy. And so we say, look, if something is just right, not too hot, not too cold, not too far, not too close, not too long, not too short, um, then these just right parameters seem to point to a purposeful design. And so again, it's similar to, I think, archaeology, where we look at that, we recognize what constitutes design and how this points to design and say, therefore, must be a designer. In the same way that we find some pottery in the ground as an archaeologist, and you say, this must have come from a person. This must have come from an intelligent being must have created this. And it's kind of an after the fact. Based on what we find, this thing we found has certain characteristics that are not best explained by natural causes. They're best explained by an intelligent cause. And so then we have attached that intelligent cause onto that thing that we have found. So I think the same is done here with the fine tuning of the universe. Yeah, we look at it with hindsight. So yeah, someone created this because the thing that we're looking at has all the characteristics of a created thing, right? And then we, we can do this pretty easily. We have really good design detection. I play a game with my students where I, I show them pictures of design things and not design things, and they have to tell me whether this is designed or not designed, right? And I show them a picture of lines in the sand, like in the Sahara Desert, how the wind blows, you know, those lines in the sand. And they say, oh yeah, that happens by natural causes. And then I show lines in the sand where someone says, will you marry me? And they've drawn it with their finger in the sand. And they all say, well, that's intelligent causes. Well, why couldn't, if, if the wind can make these lines, why couldn't the water of the waves make these lines? Because there's information in those lines, right? In the will you marry me lines. Right? I show them uh, the difference between like the Grand Canyon and maybe something like Mount Rushmore, right? We have a really good ability to detect a design where we start to see things that are extremely complex, but not just complex for complexity's sake, but also things that are very information-based, things that have a purpose, have an end goal. And when we match that complexity to that purpose or end goal that we also see, we recognize this only comes from intelligent mind. And so I think that, yeah, we do look at our universe. It shows these characteristics of a designed thing, and therefore we believe that someone had to create it. It must have a designer. Now, is it simply cause and effect? I don't think it's simply cause and effect. You'd have to show some pretty good evidence, and you can comment here if you have that. You'd have to show some pretty good evidence that a simple naturalistic cause and effect relationship can create the things that we see, right? Uh, that can create and put information into something. What sort of cause can create that sort of effect unless it is an intelligent cause? How can a naturalistic cause put information onto a paper? How can a naturalistic cause create the fine tuning that we see and the parameters that we see it? And so I, I think that you would have to provide some evidence. This is a claim uh, that it's just cause and effect. And I want to see maybe some explanation or some evidence to support that it is simply cause and effect and how that cause uh, of a naturalistic cause can produce the effect of the intelligence and fine tuning that we see. And it goes on, it says, when the earth formed, gave rise to the possibility of human life. Every once in a while, somebody wins the lottery. Yeah, somebody sometimes does get lucky. But again, we ask this question. This came up in my interview with Dr. Fazrana as well on the anthropic principle in biochemistry. Is uh, The common example of this is if I commit some sort of crime where I'm deserving of death uh, by firing squad, and so there are 10 trained marksmen all pointing their guns at me, and I am blindfolded, and I'm standing there like this, blindfolded, and I hear, ready, aim, fire, and all 10 shoot, and they're standing you know, 10, 15, 20 feet in front of me, and I... I'm still alive, would you say, well, you just happen to get lucky? 
Or would the better explanation be they missed for some reason? They were given an order not to hit me. There may be, there must be some sort of purpose or some sort of better explanation than simply I just got lucky. And so I think that's similar to what we see in the fine tuning of the universe. Is is it? Did we really just get lucky, like as in insanely lucky? And I think that when you look at some of these arguments for the fine tuning of our universe, it, it is beyond luck. It is beyond. It's it's you know getting ten you know royal flushes flopped to you in a row playing poker at some point you say look someone stacked the deck that's not possible you can't get this in a while um so uh this is i think is not just simply luck i think there is some reasons for design in our universe all right 25 minutes in we are still going next one i talked about how god is the best explanation for objective moral values and duties and the existence of evil and he comments here and says evil exists because humans as evolved as we like to think we are, are influenced by our pasts and the current environment. Mess this, those, any, it can't screw up someone's thinking. Mess with those, uh, any, and it can screw up someone's thinking. Free will doesn't exist as you think it does. Um, again, to kind of think through here a little bit, um, how do we define evil, right? Evil exists because humans, um, you know, messed up. It seems like he's defining evil saying here, uh, because we're influenced by our past and our current environment. So our current, and this is a very secular way of looking at the existence of, of evil and of right and wrong is that our current environment is a certain way. Um, you know, so we believe that slavery is wrong. Uh, now this is our current environment. And so if you go against the majority, if you go against the current environment, then that is what is wrong. And that is what is evil. But the question is, is what about the people who were going with the current environment or influenced by the culture? So what about those in the 1800s where slavery was legal, accepted by people, and this is what the current environment was? If you go against that at that time, would you have been evil, right? So is our morality changing? And so in a secular worldview, this would create subjective morality where morality is simply evolving, right? If, if we're going to base our morality on what is evolving, well, evolution is the constantly changing nature of things. And so we'd have to say if morality is coming from evolution, that our morality should always also be constantly changing and evolving. And so from this view, I think that this does kind of go along with what I think is that, that we do have, and maybe this is what it's pushing against, that we do have objective moral values and duties. Um, and that an evolutionary theory, a naturalistic theory cannot give you those objective moral values and duties. It, it always comes back to this subjectivism. And so he may say, oh no, yeah, evil is not actually wrong. We're just evolved to think these things are wrong, but they're not actually wrong. I don't know if that's your view, uh, but this is what it seems like. We're just evolved to think this way because of our culture. So are you saying then that things like slavery, rape, you know, abusing children for fun, are those not actually wrong? Are those only things that we as a culture don't like that we've disagreed about, but it's not actually wrong and that eventually in the future it could evolve one day to become wrong? I don't think that's the case. Here I would agree with J.P. Moreland, right, where he talks about how we can know moral facts even better than scientific facts, right, where he gives examples of how, like, the scientific understanding of the electron has has changed throughout history, where we have changed what we view and how we understand what an electron is. And there's been, he says, something like four different views throughout, you know, the modern science. And he goes, could I imagine something that we discover in the next 50 or 100 years that gives us a new, better, deeper understanding of the electron where what we realize is true now is actually false? We were mistaken and that something else is true? Well, sure. 
it's happened before. This is what science is doing. It's always clarifying and correcting. He goes, now, could you imagine anything in the next hundred years that we could learn or discover that would show that molesting children for fun is not wrong? I would agree with him when he says, no, there is nothing. And I think this is a good point is that there are moral, there's moral knowledge that we can know with more confidence and more certainty than even some scientific knowledge. And so we're not just messing with an environment and screwing up someone's thinking. What we're saying is that we recognize that there's actual objective right and wrong and that God is the best explanation for this. Without a divine lawgiver, you don't have objective moral laws that we have to follow. And, and then it comes down to either a cultural relativism that truth changes based on culture to culture, or an I say or individual relativism where I just get to make my own rules. Now, again, if we're then going to say that there is no uh, objective moral values and duties, that there is no objective right and wrong, then you also have no evil. And this is that famous quote by Richard Dawkins, where he says, there's no good, no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. And I cut out other parts, but that's part of what he says, right? Because we have to think about, well, what is evil? Evil is not just that which disagrees with culture. If you believe that, then you don't have objective evil. If you say evil is that which is illegal, well, cheating on your husband and wife is not as illegal. Adultery is not illegal. Is that so wrong? It's not wrong to, or it's not illegal to lie to your parents. Is that wrong? Or what about when slavery was legal? Was it no, not evil? Or can we say that something that even though it was legal is still evil? So what do we mean by evil? Well, in a Christian worldview, evil is the absence of good. Evil is the privation of good. Evil is where something good should be and it's not. Okay, then what is good? Well, good is that which aligns with God's nature. God is the standard of goodness. And so in that case, we have an objective standard of goodness. Evil is the absence of goodness. And so we can actually call something evil. Evil doesn't exist unless you have good and you don't have good unless you have God. All you have are just cultural beliefs and opinions. And uh, in my talk that I give to high schoolers on why God allows evil, I kind of give it this way. is like in a secular view where evil and, and good and bad and right and wrong is just preferences or opinions. It's like saying God does not exist because of pineapple on pizza. Well, I don't like it. Why? If God was, if God was all powerful and all good, why would he create something so disgusting? Well, that's not an argument for God. I don't like something, therefore God doesn't exist. It doesn't work that way. And so I still believe, and I don't think that this response refutes my statement that objective good, right and wrong, objective moral values and duties, and evil is best explained by the existence of God. Um, I think that what is being given here shows that all morality is relative. Uh, it's just because we act a certain way and we're influenced by our culture. And I don't think that that actually describes reality. Because if this is the view you want to take, it seems like what he's saying here, you then have to accept that morality is all subjective and all relative, that things are not actually wrong. And that is a tough pill to swallow. Now, one that I've not talked about much before on the show. I mentioned in the video that God is the best explanation for fulfilled prophecies pointing to Jesus Christ. And this is not something I've talked a lot about, but here he goes on to say, um, I don't believe the Bible. So I don't care about these or those questions, but to play along, to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament, one just needs to read it and write out a story fulfilling it. Now, uh, a few things I want to kind of work through because I haven't talked about this a lot on the show before. And hey, if you want to kind of go deeper into this, um, let me know in the comment section and maybe we'll, I'll find someone who knows way more than I do, or I'll do some study and, and look through it. I want to read a few things to you uh, here. Now, in the book, 
That's what I have here in front of me. Let me show it to you. Ugh. Evidence that demands a verdict. Uh, there is a section on the fulfilled prophecies uh, of Jesus. And the first objection that uh, is mentioned in the book is that the gospel authors deliberately crafted their biographies of Jesus so that to make Jesus appear to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. Right. And so here's kind of the exact thing here is, look, I, I don't think this story is true. I think that the writers just simply wrote a story about Jesus saying that he fulfilled these things, but he didn't actually fulfill it. Now, in Evidence that Demands a Verdict, uh, Sean McDowell uh, and all of his uh, helpers and his dad um, give a response. And I just want to kind of look through this really quick with you. There are four different responses that he quickly looks at in response to this specific objection. And then after that, I want to get into some of the fulfilled prophecies and why I do think this points to evidence for Christianity. Uh, they say here, uh, answer, this is on page 208 if you're interested. There are several reasons to believe that the gospel authors reported, reported Jesus's life and words accurately. They wrote the truth even at risk of persecution. They did not play with their audiences. They did not play to what their audiences might expect. So number one, first response to this specific objection. At the time the gospels were written, the Christian church was undergoing considerable persecution. Many Christians were martyred for the faith in excruciating and inhumane ways such as by crucifixion, being burned alive, or being fed to wild animals. Since the gospel writers had nothing obvious to gain from the inventing of a new religion and everything to lose, this suggests they recorded what they actually happened and what Jesus really said. Wouldn't it be interesting? Why, why would the gospels lie and co create this story full of lies just to fulfill these prophecies to get themselves killed? That doesn't seem to fit. Second response to this objection says the Gospels, as we have them, demonstrate restraint on the part of the writer, since Jesus is conspicuously silent on many of the controversial topics that were debated in the early church, including whether Gentile Christians had to undergo circumcision, the role of women, the practice of speaking in tongues, etc. If the Gospel writers had felt at liberty to make things up out of whole cloth, it seems likely that Jesus would have addressed these issues, right? And so if you want, if you're just making up this story, trying to fulfill this thing and get Jesus to say the things you want, it seems like you would get him to address these big issues that, hey, Jesus spoke on this, therefore there's that authority. Number three, it is worthy to note, although the gospel authors evidently embraced a highly elevated Christology, Jesus himself, in quoted speech, is remarkably cryptic about his self-identity. It seems likely that if the gospel authors had felt themselves at liberty to make things up, Jesus would have stressed this his own messianic and divine status much more emphatically. And fourth, if the gospels are simply just uh, writing, reading the story and the prophecies of the Old Testament and then writing the story to fulfill it, it says here, the Jewish understanding of the Messiah, the messianic prophecies, emphasized a coming king. So that in the time of Jesus, they hoped for a Messiah, they would evict the Roman occupation. If the New Testament writer's motivation was to persuade people who longed for a con conquering hero, they could have omitted or downplayed the crucifixion to craft a convincing presentation. But they didn't, since instead they gave it emphasis. They wrote a truthful account, and in doing so, they revealed in a far deeper way the saving role of the Messiah. And so I think here that these are four good reasons to question this kind of simple dismissal, that they are simply just making this story up. Now, again, if we're talking about evidence, right, if we're claiming that Christians just simply use um, 
uh, uh, guilt trips and Pascal's wager and that we need to be making our decisions based on evidence, my question would be, what evidence do we have that shows the gospel writers are simply making up this story to fulfill the prophecies? Do we have provided evidence that this actually took place? Or is there better evidence to suggest that the gospel writers actually wrote what happened? They wrote what they saw. Now, what about some of these prophecies? Um, it's not simply just, I think, the ability of the disciples just to make stuff up. Now, again, in Evidence That Demands a Verdict, they, lift, they list a few different types of prophecies. So there's like four different types. So we have types of foreshadowing. All right, types and foreshadowing. So, you know, these uh, these pictures of who Jesus is in the Old Testament, and then Jesus fulfills that in the New Testament. So Christ is being our Passover lamb, or Christ is the Lord's provision. Christ is the high priest or the high king. I'm reading in Hebrews right now about Jesus is the, the ultimate high priest. Um, you know, Jesus being the angel of Yahweh or the bronze serpent or the son of man, as we see in Daniel, and then again in the words of Jesus. And so these are kind of some types and foreshadowings that we see between the Old and the New Testament. We also, though, as it breaks down to the second aspect of these, is messianic predictive prophecies. And so different aspects of the Old Testament that make certain predictions about Jesus and then how those are fulfilled in the New Testament. So, for example, you know, the Jesus, uh, the Messiah would be preexistent and divine. This is in Micah 5.2. And then in multiple points in the New Testament, one being Colossians 1.17, there is a, there's a fulfillment of this that Jesus was before all things, this pre-existent one. We have in the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 18, 18, talking about how the Messiah to come would be a prophet. And then uh, Jesus in Matthew 21, the crowd said, this is a prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, of Galilee. And so the people recognizing uh, Jesus as a prophet. So this is not just Jesus making things up about himself or the disciples, but these are the people themselves calling Jesus a prophet and therefore fulfilling what the Old Testament uh, predicted. We also see like uh, the line of Jesse, the house of David, the Messiah would come. This happens there. Uh, we have that Jesus would be a judge, a king, a special presence in the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the ministry of Jesus would begin in Galilee, and then the ministry did begin in Galilee. Uh, that Jesus would be a teacher of parables uh, This uh, and do a ministry of miracles, right? This is in Psalms and, and Isaiah. Uh, and then is fulfilled again in Matthew chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 13, verse 34. And so these are a lot of examples of what Jesus would do, uh, how he was to enter the temple, that he was going to enter the temple on a donkey, right? So this is in Zechariah 9, 9, where it says that Messiah will, you know, will mount a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and enter into the city. And then the New Testament, Luke chapter 19, records Jesus entering in on a donkey. And so here are some messianic predictive prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. There's also prophecies regarding the time and the Messiah's coming, but then there's also some predictions that were literally fulfilled in Christ. So for example, let me give you some of these, uh, like uh, the, his nativity and early years, right? So the fact that he would be born uh, and the nativity was mentioned in Genesis, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Uh, the place of his birth is predicted in Numbers 24 and Micah 5 too, right? And, get, and think about this one as well. That's really hard. If Jesus, after the fact, is trying to go back and, and fill this, or if the disciples are trying to go back afterwards and attach all these fulfilled prophecies to Jesus, you, you can't change where he was born. You can't change the nature of his early years. Uh, th that's not changeable. You can change maybe what he did or try to make stuff up. But if Jesus is born in, you know, in Jerusalem, uh, but it's predicted that he's born in Bethlehem. You can't just say, oh, just by the way, he's born in Bethlehem. 
uh, and change those sort of things. Um, after his birth, right, the, that he would be a, the adoration by the Magi is projected in Psalm 72 and Isaiah chapter 60. The fact that they would leave and go into Egypt after Jesus's birth is predicted in Hosea 11. And then all the, the, the innocent kids would be massacred. This is predicted in Jeremiah 31. And so uh, we could keep going on, but there are a lot of these examples. Um, we also see this of his crucifixion, right? The fulfilled prophecies of Jesus in the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, that he would be rejected by Jews and Gentiles. Psalms talks about that. Isaiah, the persecution of Jesus in Psalm and Isaiah, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Psalms and Zechariah, the betrayal of his own friend in Psalm and Zechariah as well. Again, like to, to, to fit that into the story after the fact, you there, there's a lot of evidence that would be needed that all of these details are simply made up. That there'd be betrayer of the death, right? The, 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 there'd be desertion of the disciples. There'd be false accusations. There would be mocking. There'd be silence under accusation. Psalm and Isaiah talk about that. Uh, these, again, are just a small list. There's also predictions on his resurrection, his ascension, and his second advent. Um, this is a lot of fulfilled prophecy. And so to, I think, dismiss it by just simply saying, well, yeah, someone just made up the story. Uh, you'd have to present, pre present some good evidence that the story is completely fabricated, completely false, that none of this is true. Uh, how much of it is true? Because we do have historical evidence that Jesus is a real person. And so uh, this, I think, is going to be a difficult task rather to say, look, I think that there is good evidence for the reliability of the Bible and for then these fulfilled prophecies. And again, recognizing that if you're going to make the objection that these uh, the prophecies were added later, right? That was a big discovery with the Dead Sea Scrolls is that we have the, the complete Isaiah scroll making a lot of these predictions of Jesus. Um, and that scroll dates to before the time of Jesus, right? So that changes the objection from being Jesus did all these things. And now Christians are going back in, altering the Old Testament, putting in these things in the Old Testament to be fulfilled in Jesus to where now that we have scrolls, dating these prophecies to pre-Jesus, now you have to change the argument and say, no, we've now changed and fabricated the story of Jesus. And so again, that would be something we need evidence to support. Um, and again, just to say, no, I just don't think it's true. Uh, someone just made it up. Again, I would push back and say, hey, that sounds more of kind of an unevidenced based um, not an intellectual response. And so if we're talking about these reasons why people reject, do we simply base everything on intellectual grounds? Okay, then what is the intellectual ground in which this comment is based? What evidence do we have? Now, again, I recognize this is a, you know, a long comment that was written, but also a short amount of space that you don't want to put a lot. So, hey, if you want to comment, I would love to see that because, again, I'm trying to look into this and try to figure out what is uh, the truth and what makes the most sense based on what we know. Now, working through these again, uh, next one, there is no evidence outside the Bible of Jesus' resurrection. This is because I said the best ex explanation of the facts of the resurrection is that Jesus rose from the dead. So he says there's no evidence outside the Bible of Jesus' resurrection. We're here to take a story as true with nothing backing it. Gospels were written, written decades later, and any outside sources are dated decades to centuries later. Now, notice this uh, really quickly. Go back to the first part of this. It says um, there is no outside evidence outside the Bible. And then later on, it says any outside source is dated decades or centuries later. So are there outside sources and evidences that are just too late or are there no outside sources? So it seems to kind of be like covering all those bases and saying there's no outside source. But if you find one, it's too late. Um, maybe that's kind of how it is put here. So it's like, are there no sources 
or are there sources they're just too late you're kind of making both claims it says um our, all you have is a new testament writing about a story that even christians will admit is far fetched and impossible to believe people don't come back from the dead actual death brain death i say that with 100% certainty now for this i want to read a quote by norman geisler because i think christians get this objection a lot and maybe don't respond uh, the best that we can. Because often, and what I'm going to do, and I think a good response is to show what some of those, sorry, man, what some of those evidences are from outside the Bible. But I think that this very objection is not a good objection. Now, let me read a quote by Norman Geisler, because he's way smarter than I do, and he phrases this better than I could. Here is what Norman Geisler says. He says, the objection that the writings are partisan involves a significant but false implication that witnesses cannot be reliable if they were close to the one about whom they gave testimony. This is clearly false, right? So like he says, there's no evidence outside the Bible. Well, why are you rejecting the evidence in the Bible? Why is it that we only are, or that we think somehow evidence outside the Bible is better? So to say, look, that the, the evidence inside the Bible of the resurrection of Jesus is, is clearly false because, you know, they're, they're too close. They believe, right? They're biased or something like that. And he's saying, look, this idea is clearly false. Here's why. Survivors of the Jewish Holocaust were close to the events they have described to the world. That very fact puts them in the best position to know what happened. They were there. It happened to them. The same applies to court testimony of someone who survived a vicious attack. It applies to survivors of Normandy invasion during World War II or the Tet Offenses during the Vietnam War. The New Testament witness should not be disqualified because they were too close to the events they relate. Right? Don't we want the people that were there? I know it's like, you know, and I think Jay Warner Wallace talks about this in Cold Case Christianity. It's like, well, you know, you were, you clearly, you, you say that they're guilty because, you know, the, that's what you believe. It's like, well, yeah, that's what I believe. But ask the question, why do I believe it? Why do I think that they're guilty? Because I saw them commit the crime. That's why I'm saying that they're guilty is I saw them. So you can't dismiss someone just because they're claiming guilty or innocent uh, because they were there. They should have it. Now, Gerd, uh, uh, Geisler uh, goes on and says this, suppose there were four eyewitnesses to a murder. There was also one witness who arrived on the scene after the actual killing and saw only the victim's body. Another person heard a secondhand report of the killing. In the trial, the defense attorney argues, other than the four eyewitnesses, this is a weak case and the charges should be dismissed for lack of evidence. Others might think that the attorney was throwing out a red herring. The judge and jury were being distracted from the strongest evidence to the weakest evidence. And the reasoning was clearly faulty. Since the New Testament, right? So think about that for a second. It's, it's saying, if you're going to say, look, the, here's your four eyewitnesses who saw the murder, and here's the person who came afterwards and saw the dead body, but clearly they're too close. They're, they're saying the conclusion I don't like. So let's dismiss them and say, now, whatever their evidence do you have, you're trying to get people to stop looking at the best evidence and focus on that, which is not as good. <laughs> Now, often what happens then is then you present the evidence that's not as good, and then that evidence gets rejected. It gets just tossed out the window. That's not good evidence. Well, yeah, that's not the best stuff. Here's the best stuff we have. Why doesn't the best stuff in the Bible count? Geisler continues, and he finishes here. He says, since the New Testament witnesses were the only eyewitnesses and contemporary testimonies to Jesus, it is a fallacy 
to misdirect attention to the non-Christian secular sources. Nonetheless, it is instructed to show what confirming evidence of Jesus can be gleaned from out from outside the New Testament. And so we have examples from Tacitus. We have examples from Suetonius. We have examples from Josephus and others who do confirm some of these details. And so um, the very nature, I think, of this objection, uh, as pointed out here by Geisler, is a false objection. This is a fallacy to try to kind of get our attention off of that which is best, the eyewitness testimony of the Gospels, uh, and onto something that is not as good of these outside sources to the resurrection. So we're just take a, a, a story is true with nothing backing it. Again, that's clearly false, right? To, to say you've you've thrown out the gospels, you've thrown out all the eyewitness evidence and eyewitness testimony, and then say you have nothing backing it. This is again like that trial court it says you can't. Here are the four eyewitnesses who watched the murder happen. Now, besides that, do you have anything else? No. See, how am I supposed to accept this is true with nothing backing it? Well, there is backing you've just dismissed all the backing. So now the question becomes, do you have a good reason for why those four eyewitnesses are lying or mistaken or not, were not actually there? So again, you have to present good reason to believe uh, why the sources in scripture are not good sources. Now, again, he says the gospels then are written decades later and any outside source are dated decades to centuries later. Okay, but that doesn't mean that they're false. When something is written about an event, does not mean that event is false. Um, I could write a book about September 11, nine, uh, 2001. Now I've written it a decade after the event, right? Two decades, decades later. But I can still recount that event and, and give true details because I was alive. I, I watched it happen on TV. Now it'd be better if it was coming from someone who was there. But again, then we have, here's the eyewitness testimony, someone who was in New York, who saw the buildings fall, and 20 years later, decades later, they write an event. You can't dismiss that eyewitness testimony because either one, they were there or because they wrote it late. Now, is it possible the story has changed? Yeah, but you have to then show evidence to why the story has changed or how it has changed over that time. It says all you have is a New Testament writing. It's not just all we have, that's a, that's a good amount, and there's others, about a story that even Christians will admit is far-fetched and impossible to believe. I don't know what Christians you're referring to. Um, the evidence, the resurrection is hard to believe because we don't see people rising every day. As you mentioned there, people don't come back from the dead, actual dead, brain dead. I say that with 100% certainty. Yeah, you're right. Naturalistically speaking, we're not claiming that Jesus rose from the dead by natural causes for which causes other people to rise from the dead that we are now see and are used to experiencing, right? The claim here is that Jesus rose from the dead supernaturally, that God raised him from the dead. And this goes back to, again, the evolution question, other issues that we've raised in the past of, of this is assuming, it's coming from a secular worldview, assuming that God does not exist. Supernatural things are not possible. It's a naturalistic framework saying that there's a natural explanation for everything naturalistically, people don't come back from the dead. Therefore, the resurrection story cannot be true. And therefore, the gospel writers must be mistaken. Notice this doesn't object to the, any of the evidence for the resurrection, the evidence that even non-Christian historians and scholars accept, like Jesus died by Roman crucifixion, the tomb of Jesus was empty, the disciples had uh, claimed to see the risen Jesus, and the lives of people like Paul and James are transformed. It doesn't address any of that. And we recognize that 
the main objection to the resurrection hypothesis or the resurrection explanation is it requires a supernatural event. But we're not claiming that this takes place in a natural world. I like the way that Frank Turek Perth said is like, if, if people rose from the dead all the time, then you tell someone, hey, by the way, Jesus rose from the dead. He came back from the dead. Then the response would be like, well, so did Uncle Bob. And now I have to give the inheritance back. Right. It's, it's partially miracles are are unexpected. Miracles are supernatural events to where it should open up our eyes and go, wow, something crazy happened here because it's not something that should have taken place. This gives us reason to believe it is something supernatural. If people actually came back from the dead, then the resurrection of Jesus is nothing special. It's just a normal, everyday, common occurrence. But you can't dismiss something as not happening because some people say it's far-fetched or impossible to believe. Guess what? Sometimes impossible to believe things or far-fetched things are actually true. You can't just dismiss something because it seems very crazy. Now I'm going way over time, 53 minutes. Hopefully this is good. Hopefully you guys are enjoying it. Um, next one that he mentions here. Also, humans have a way of, of taking people who made an influence on them and turning them into something more like a god. Mythologies all over the world are filled with humans ascending above man to become godlike. Jesus is nothing new. Just people have been indoctrinated since childhood to believe and are scared to give up on old thought process. I'd love to see some evidence for this. Um, that the only reason is indoctrination and people being scared to give up on old thought process. That to me, if I'm honest, like that to me seems like the scare tactic. That seems like the guilt trip. That's like, you're just scared to give this up rather than looking at it evidentially. Um, what we want to look at here is a couple things. Uh, we should not be committing a hasty generalization that the fact that sometimes we take people and make them into being godlike that's true we often like to yeah take people that have made an influence on us and rise them to places maybe they shouldn't be and maybe we have stories of, of turning people into gods just because that has happened at times you cannot say therefore that has taken place with jesus you would have to provide evidence that it's actually taken place with jesus rather than making a hasty generalization that's saying because it's happened in these cases, therefore it probably happened in this one as well. Saying Jesus is nothing new. Well, actually, Jesus is very new. Yes, there are examples in different mythologies of, of divine beings with being all powerful and all knowing because look, why would you create a God for your people and then have that God be weak and puny and not powerful and not know things, right? And so there, there are similarities that we see this supernatural coming into existence or the supernatural knowledge or supernatural power because we're trying to talk about people who are greater than the normal person. Um, and, but there is newness to Jesus and what he did. Uh, and so uh, when you look at this, and, and this is a common example of of how Jesus is just kind of these repeat mythologies. There's nothing new like Jesus. Uh, I often, I offer three thoughts uh, in response to this. Number one is this. Um, there are no pre-Jesus documented resurrection stories. So when we talk about these dying and rising gods, and there's nothing new uh, with Jesus, uh, what we see is that these stories are, are dated. They're, they're, they're written on stuff, and they're, they're, they're engraved, or there's pictures on vases or whatever. But these all come and are dated after the time of Jesus. We have not found any. There's no documented resurrection stories pre-Jesus. 
And so when you look at the historical timeline in archaeology, what it actually looks like is that you have all of these kind of God stories before Jesus. Jesus comes and does something very new. He dies and then rises from the dead. And then all of a sudden these other stories start to change to start to look more like Jesus. So rather than Jesus looking like these other stories, it uh, is more like these other stories starting to look more like Jesus. Number two, what you need to start to think about when you talk about these similarities is, is that often when we are saying that Jesus is very similar to these others, we're starting to, we're kind of picking and choosing the details. Maybe there's one or two details that overlap, but when you look at the whole picture of, you know, Mythesis or Dionysus or Isis or whatever compared to Jesus, the, the picture is very, very different. Also, the language that is used is different. So when we talk about, um, these gods being very powerful, or, you know, as I mentioned, they're all powerful. Um, often, yeah, these other gods are not creators of the universe, right? They are created beings. Um, when we talk about uh, them dying and rising, this often is very different. Like I, I forget off the top of my head, but, you know, there's one story of like, you know, this getting chopped up in all these pieces and somehow this is rising from the dead. Uh, when we talk about being born of a virgin, this is very different. Not a female giving birth that is a virgin like with Jesus, but uh, one God is like being born of a virgin was coming out of the side of a mountain and creating the cave. And so you have to look at some of these details that are often picked and chosen, but also are maybe not explaining the same thing if we're trying to say that there's nothing different with Jesus. Last thing to think about is this with these dying and rising God stories is that just because a false story comes before a real story does not mean that the real story is false. I had a common example of this is what's called the sinking of the Titan or the sinking of or, or futility. All right, this is a false made up book about a boat that goes out for its maiden voyage, hits an iceberg, sinks, uh, and a bunch of people on board die because there are not enough lifeboats. Now, if you look at only the details of this book, it is almost identical to the Titanic. But the sinking of the Titan, or futility, was written before the Titanic sank. Now, would anyone make the argument that because there is a fake made-up story, the sinking of the Titan, that almost perfectly matches the sinking of the Titanic, that therefore the Titanic is false? No, of course not. Just because there's a real true story that happened that resembles something fake that came earlier, you cannot say, therefore, this real story is fake. This is a case-by-case -case basis. You need to find evidence and arguments for each one. And so I think that we have good reason to believe that these other people that were made to be like gods are not true. I think there's good reason to believe that the story of Jesus being God is true. And this is kind of what we're working through here. All right, let me give a few more as he finished up his response to me. He says, this is, I think this is the last one. Yep, this is his last comment. He says, there is no proof. So this is my thing. It says, uh, God is the best explanation for near-death experiences the, and the existence of consciousness. He says, there is no proof um, from near-death experiences because the subject isn't dead. They are clinically dead meaning the heart and lungs have stopped working and the brain starts to shut down everything in the body to keep itself alive. The tunnel of light is your eyes losing oxygen and fading away. All the images you see are your brain panicking and hallucinating from loss of oxygen. Once all is said and done and you will not live another day, you actually die and no one has ever come back from brain death. It's final. Also, doctors can induce a near-death experience and ever done DMT. It mimics death. Our brain also produces it, and we are still studying its effects on us. Try it, and you'll look at death differently. 
Now, I think that uh, this comment is um, possibly misunderstanding um, the near-death experiences that I am talking about. Now, I did an interview with Dr. Gary Habermas on this, and I'll link to that below, and you can check that out. Um, but here's a book uh, that has uh, over 100 verified, as it says here, paranormal phenomena from near-death experiences. And so uh, the ones that are in this book, and there's different categories uh, of different experiences. So it's like um, extrasensory, uh, perception of events that go beyond the physical senses, or uh, after-death communication with strangers, or after-death communication with family people, or observations of outer body near-deathers by others. Um, and so there's things here that is not simply, I saw a tunnel of light. Right. And I talked to my grandpa, right, because I loved my grandpa before I died or before he died. And then I went and talked to grandpa. Um, and this also is not simply as mentioned here. Uh, this is not just an image that they saw previously, uh, a hallucination of some past event that they had. Um, what these experiences talk about here is gaining new information, uh, one that they would not have had otherwise. And many of these are when there is no brain or heart activity. So if you want to argue they're not actually dead or or there's no they're not brain dead, well, it's, there's no measurable brain activity. And their body is on the table. And one of the stories is the person while being dead on the table goes out in their in their kind of in, in their near death experience, their disembodied state goes out into the lobby of the hospital and hears something their brother-in-law said to another person like I had to cancel my trip because it looks like, you know, Susan here or whatever I forget it. I think it was Susan in the book. Uh, sorry Susan, I, I but anyways. <laughs> Susan here is going to kick the bucket and I'm going to have to be a pallbearer at the at the funeral. And then after waking up from that NDE and becoming conscious again, uh, Susan then saying, hey, I, I, I heard, that, you know, my cousin saying this. And someone went out and said, hey, what did you say to your friend? And the cousin said, well, I said, you know, I had to cancel my plans because blah, 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 blah. And it was exactly what the person heard while they were unconscious on the table. Right? There's other examples of, of the person being unconscious on the table uh, going into a cardiac arrest, uh, having no measurable brain activity, and uh, and then coming out of the body and seeing a serial number on a machine, uh, an oxygen machine inside of the hospital room uh, that had a 12-digit serial number. This machine was six feet tall. And uh, after waking up, recited that number to the nurse who was standing by. Later on, the nurse, as someone was cleaning off the machine, got on a ladder because the ladder had to be used to get on top of the machine, got on top of the machine, read off the serial number on the top of the machine, and it was the exact same 12-digit number that this person saw in a room that she had never been in but had memorized this number. Now, Dr. Habermas and his team went and talked to some of the people who were in that room, some of the doctors who were in that very room when that event took place. Now, there are others of people going around, one of a woman seeing a shoe on the ledge, the third story ledge of a hospital where the lace was tucked under the shoe and all these sort of things. So the point that I'm making here is that this is not just simply seeing an image that I saw once before in the past or having a conversation with a dead loved one that I cannot actually verify, but this is... Uh, these are people going into parts of the physical world and seeing and experiencing things that then they then can later be verified. And there's over a hundred here in this book. So now you can go again, maybe and claim, well, they're all lying. <laughs> but again, there's there's good reason. These are people uh, that have devices or have information that verify the claims that they are making. And so to to say that we want to ground our knowledge on intellectual reasons. But yet maybe to dismiss over 100 stories here in this book um, as everyone is lying, that's not an intellectual reason. 
That's starting with a pre-commitment. That is a our presupposition saying these sort of things are not possible. You do not have a soul. Therefore, this is not possible. Therefore, this is not evidence pointing to God. I think NDEs are good evidence pointing to God. Again, as I went on, but the, con the comment here doesn't uh, look at, I think that uh, the fact that we are conscious beings is incredible evidence for God. I've talked about that before. And I don't think actually uh, that is what is mentioned here about simply just seeing a tunnel of light uh, or images hallucinating in the brain actually represents the types of NDEs that I am referring to and that I have read. And so finishing up then uh, to the last comment that I said, I pointed out to the beginning, if you have any uh, thing that you want to put in the live chat, I'd love to uh, respond to it here. I don't see anything right now. It says, I don't remember the rest of your points, uh, but I think I made my argument. The biblical story doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. Uh, I, I would like to know what parts of it don't make sense. And the evidence has never been shown to prove it. I think I've given some evidence here. I've responded with historical evidence, with some archaeological evidence from historical records, from evidence from philosophy and from science that confirm different details. Uh, eyewitness testimony as evidence. And so I think I have been given evidence to prove it. Um, I don't think I'm using a guilt trip. This is not make you feel guilty. But we have to think about this as well as we finish up, is that if, if the Christian story is true, this idea of creation, God creating all things, that we are fallen, that God is, is redeeming all things. There's a redemption plan at place, and therefore there will be a full restoration of all things, uh, that we are sinners who are inherently broken and cannot fix ourselves. It's possible that I feel guilty because I am guilty. And again, I think if, if we're only using guilt trips, I don't think that is appropriate. But I think that it absolutely is appropriate to, to, to point out what is true about reality and the standard that God calls us to live to. And if someone feels guilty, that's not evidence or reason to reject it. That's a reason to change the reason we're feeling guilty. Now, I had this conversation with my high schoolers not too long ago. Where from a secular view, you feel guilty because culture is telling you what you're doing is wrong, but it's not actually wrong. And therefore, just reject what culture says, and therefore the feeling of guilt goes away. But from a Christian view, maybe your guilt feel guilty because you actually are. Now, we often, I think, and this is where we get different rejections of God, where it's not just an intellectual rejection, but it's a moral rejection. If I'm living a life of sin and I feel guilty for, for doing it because I go to church or I read my Bible where God is saying this is a sin and we're at church is preaching that this is a sin and I feel guilty for doing it, one way to stop feeling guilty is to remove myself from God and from the church. And then maybe I stop feeling guilty because I'm no longer around anyone who is calling me out on my wrongness. I start to believe I'm right. So I don't think that we should only use guilt trips, but maybe we, that is a valid way to, 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 to recognize and help people see who they are. And I think also one of the things I've, I've talked with students about that has been huge in, in them is, is also recognizing this idea of true justice is not true in a secular worldview. Sometimes bad people don't get punished, and sometimes good people do get the worst of it. And there's no true, lasting, or eternal justice without Christianity in an afterlife and God making all things right. There's something that hits home with that idea of like, no, but I want justice, and Christianity gives that to you. That doesn't make something false. But there are satisfactions of our, things that satisfy our desires. I desire, I'm hunger, and, and food satisfies that desire. We have desires for justice and mercy, and, and God satisfies those things. doesn't mean that God is false. I hope that we also don't just simply use Pascal's wager. 
Now, I have an interview quite a while ago on this, uh, talking about Pascal. Pascal's wager is never meant to be an evidence for Christianity, right? This idea of uh, if Christianity is false, I lose nothing. Uh, but if Christianity is true, you know, not believing in Christianity, you lose everything. That's not an evidence uh, or a proof for Christianity, but that is something to get people to think deeper and go, okay, that's true. If I'm wrong, this has a huge effect. If I'm wrong, it has no effect. So that should just cause us to say, maybe I should look into this a little bit more. And that's what Pascal was trying to do there, is trying to get people to look more seriously at these. Now, I'm not going to make a comment on Ray Comfort videos, but I don't think that this is manipulation. And I'm not expecting you to be manipulated easily. I don't want you to be manipulated easily, and I don't want anyone to be easily manipulated. We should be persuaded by good reasons. And I think that what I have presented here are good reasons. Um, I think that there are some flaws. I think there's some mistakes in logic uh, in some of the reasons presented to try to um, refute my points. And so, hey, I, I don't think that the refutations hold and therefore I think my points are still valid. I think there are good reasons to believe that Christianity is true. So there are some thoughts. I don't see anything that came in in the comment section. So let me end by telling you guys this. If you are kind of connected to the ministry, right? Um, there are some big changes coming up. And uh, if you don't care about the ministry, um, hey, you probably already tuned out because I'm done talking about that. But there's some big changes coming up. I'm going to let you guys know about those as soon as they happen. I'm super excited on kind of where things are going. Also, I just want to point out that my summer is insanely busy. So I don't know what YouTube uh, posting is going to look at, but I think I did the math and I'm doing something like 30 something lectures at seven different events, including two Maven trips, which is going to take me on the road for over 40 days this summer out of like my 60 day summer vacation. I'm going to be on the road for 40 days uh, speaking at uh, seven different events. Uh, 30 something lectures. It's going to be a busy, busy summer. So I would love your prayers uh, as we prepare for that. It's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. I love all the opportunities. I'm going to be working with students. If you want to know more about that, we can talk more about kind of what's coming up. Uh, but I'm going to be posting some videos as we get there, along with there's some other really exciting, fun changes I just want to kind of let you know about and you will see what's coming up. So if you are still with me, thank you so much for being here. If this has been an encouragement to you, I'd love for you to help me out and share it with others. Uh, that is a great place or a great way to get this to spread. If, if there's something specific here that you thought was good, uh, that you want to help uh, people see uh, and see the truth of Christianity. Again, I think it's kind of a brief overview, a lot of different points uh, that we can go deeper into as well as the videos I'm going to post. So anyways, I love your help in sharing that. Uh, like it, uh, subscribe. And um, again, just thank you so much for being here. Have a blessed rest of your day and continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus, because as always, they are worth thinking about. See you later, everybody. Have a blessed rest of your day. Bye. To follow.